It's the Loose Filter Podcast. It's just three bros hanging out. <laughs> AKA just three bros hanging, hanging out. out. That's, hanging out. That's the thing we're- it's the Loose Filter Podcast. I and I'm your host. We already had. Oh, okay. No, well. We should do it over again. This should be the intro. This is the intro. This, this is, is the worst do. intro. <laughs> it's the Loose Filter Podcast from your friends. <laughs> Dave Gant. Here we go. Okay. Wait, what? That's not good? No. Oh my god. It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and I am your host, Stuart Sims, here with my co-conspirators. Anthony Campolo. And Dave Gant. We have a hangout episode for you this time, like we uh, mentioned. And uh, an insurrection. And <laughs> Dave is being very, <laughs> I just want to say at the top of this episode. He's instigating. We have, he is, this is instigation Dave. This is instigator Gant on this episode, apparently. But we, uh, as you will have heard now, what should be a couple of episodes before this one, we've started a new kind of episode that we're going to roll into the rotation here that we're calling Hangouts, where we just talk about what we've been listening to, watching, thinking about, etc., so forth and so on. Anthony, did I get that right? This is your uh, initiative here. All the media uh, in- we consume, so whether that's music or TV shows or movies or cool internet things. And why... Our new toaster oven. Why, more importantly, why we dig it. Why we dig it, what exactly. What we find it has to a be compelling. <laughs> Your new toaster has a convection <laughs> setting? No, I made that How? up. How? How? What Wait, you've never had? I, I, had, I used to have one with a convection I thought only setting. like ovens could convect. No, I mean, a, a toaster oven. A, a convection well, toaster oven. A toaster oven's not like sealed. Like, doesn't the, the no, I, I've had one and it reduces cook times by like 15%. What have I been doing with my life? So what have you been listening to, Anthony? Well... The first thing we should talk about is Bon Iver, because his new album just came out. Bon Iver, for those who don't know, is amazing. A.K.A. I've listened- bon Iver. Bon Iver, yes, as yeah. some people would say. As some people. Uh, I haven't. I have not listened to the album at all. Let's listen to the first song and see what happens. What is it? All of the tracks have very weird names. So this one is... 22 over soon with infinity signs for the O's and soon.
Bonivere sound has really progressed a lot from his first album back in 2007 was very very acoustic and focused mostly on his acoustic guitar and voice and a couple extra instruments on top then his last album in 2011 really fleshed out the band added a lot of horns and winds and now he's going a lot more electronic and I think that's partially a big influence from James Blake I know he's been working with him a lot and probably Frank Ocean as well. There's a big movement of more electronic things being put into a lot of these singer-songwriters. That track was pretty ethereal, but some of the other ones get really experimental and weird and glitchy as well. What amazes me is how totally, at this point, especially with what I'm hearing in this album, so thoroughly electronic. It sounds just, it's just electronic music, essentially, at this point. Vocally driven electronic music. But it remains sparse and kind of fragile and almost ethereal at the same time and also manages a lot to sound instrument driven because of the way he creates spaces and he allows the sounds whether they be whatever the sound source is to have resonance and to have shape and really interesting contours to the sounds themselves yeah the sense of space and openness and place that he creates with his music has always been one of the things that I've enjoyed most about his composition style and really his production style. He thinks a lot about production. I think that really shows in what he's doing with this album. What have you been listening to, Dave? Oh, okay. I was going to, my insurrection I had planned was to uh, hijack the entire episode and talk about the fact that mostly I haven't been listening to music other than, uh, I've been spending some time uh, sort of playing with my own. No. (laughs) Doing what? No. (laughs) I said chip tunes. Over the course of the last week. Only chip tunes. I borrowed uh, Anthony's synth. um, Yeah, you did. He recently purchased the uh, Archuria Mini Brute, which I'd played around with a little bit before, but it was the first time I got to spend like a lot of, you know, few straight hours with it and uh, having a, a, a grand old time playing with that. And then also I got a new, uh, little portable keyboard to go along with my laptop that it just works as a logic controller and I can carry anywhere. And I was just sort of thinking on the wonderful uh, new set of like sort of prosumer, I guess, or I I hate using that word, but sort of like inexpensive but totally usable instruments that are now available that are coming out at a rapid pace. The, The thing about living through such a time of rapid change in terms of like our tools and, and our media and our culture, our, the tools of our culture and the products. And, and you have to live through the crappy name part of it because we don't know what to call things for a while. Yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a little while to sort that out. So for a lot of my adult life, crappy names for things have been the norm until we settle on something a little better. But prosumer, I mean, it, it does what it should, right? Well, I guess it's just the... the so unpack that term. So uh, people listening may not... What is pro- prosumer? What does that mean? <laughs> well, I mean, it's... Advertising non-speak. <laughs> it's, they're products that are sort of priced or aimed at consumers, but have some professional features or some professional use. What, well, what's interesting to me is that that is actually a response from manufacturers or people, businesses who make that stuff, because in the last couple of decades, we've seen a rise in fan activity. I mean, the whole topic of fan activity and fan culture is fascinating, but in particular, 
we've seen in the last 15 or 20 years the rise of what researchers call the pro-am, which is uh, an amateur who is so dedicated to or energetic about craft or a hobby or an activity that they end up having achieving a level of understanding, knowledge, expertise, skill, whatever, that could be considered expert level. And then sometimes we'll even get hired by the companies that they're aping. This happened with gamers who were creating new Sonic-like games under a different name, and they ended up getting hired to make actual Sonic games. Right. So, yeah. So we're even seeing the amateur who gets so good at being a fan that the people who made the original thing go can you make the next thing for us right because clearly is what they figured need out how to, to do with the simpsons they need to get a whole team of writers who grew up and love the simpsons and, and start making know simpsons. how to write yeah. simpsons <laughs> yeah no kidding what's salient about that i think with regard to dave's hijacking of the topic to talk about prosumer gear a little bit is that the tools for becoming a pro-am for learning how to do something you love really well are so accessible now and relatively inexpensive as long as you have the basic hardware to do the tool, which is going to be a computer, a laptop, a tablet, or well, something. Well, I mean, e- even even the phone that you have can. That's it, what, it, I, or it, even it, a phone can do a lot, right? So, so, so some sort of basic tool that can run the software to be the Swiss Army. Yeah, and that's the only way you can get to even the skill level of being able to do that is having the tools, being able to work with them and learning how to use them. It has to be hands-on. But the tools are getting so accessible, I think is my point, that I wonder if we're going to see more and more people finding their way to that, you know, as amateurs, as autodidacts, to find their way to being really great at the thing they oh, start. Oh, yeah. I think we've already out. seen that for the last 30 years or so. Well, <laughs> well no, that's what I mean, proliferate in a really, yeah. you know, kind of unexpected way. Yeah. Well, what's what going on after. right now that's really interesting is there's a lot of movement in the YouTube community, especially with Hank Green, to really legitimize being a professional internet content creator. He started the Internet Creators Guild, which you pay $60 a year and you get all sorts of information in terms of the legalities of putting your stuff online, how you own it, how you publish it, how to deal even with like comment sections and communities or how to make sure you don't get hacked, a huge range of just very practical things that you need to know to do this because there's now thousands of people who are doing this and making a full-time living. That's a good point, Anthony, because unlike the previous century, I guess, really, which, which is when we saw... The invention of the tools to make mass culture, but also the commercialization of those products. The tools have been greatly democratized, if you will. They're very accessible. They're much easier to use. They're much easier to get a hold of. They're much less expensive. The means of distribution now is ubiquitous. and Everyone has access to to it and access from it. Exactly. The only models we have for how creatives were professionals as a sustainable living for about 100 years or so, those models collapsed. And the structures, more importantly, that often profiteered and (laughs) robbed creatives and so forth, but those structures that did those things, that took care of legal considerations and rights and distribution, that also collapsed. So now as the creators are discovering new ways to monetize what they do to make a living... We also have to provide those structures. Yeah, there's a lot people need to know to be able to function in this brave new world <laughs> of internet content That's creation. a great phrase. You should write that down. That's a good one. Well, I don't need to write it down because I just said it into a recording machine. Oh, that's right. Yes. We don't need literacy. 
So are we going to end up in a post-literate world? Like you get a, you know, you go to the drive-through in your computer-driven car, and you, it's just icons, and you just boop the one you want, and ideally we'll just link our brains up to it, and it'll just deliver the information straight to our neurons. You don't even have to think to think. Exactly. This is horrible. New well, topic. Well, I, I hope any anybody listening can appreciate the irony of Stuart and Anthony hijacking my hijacking of the uh, episode here. Well, we're coming back around, though. We just need, need the well, segue I, back I just... into prosumer. So I'll give it to you. <clears throat> <laughs> All this behavior has, of course, been catalyst for commercial interest to develop these prosumer tools that Dave mentions, which brings us around to your original hijacking. So what kind of gear are you fascinated by? What's funny is that you, you took it in a completely different direction that I was actually most enthusiastic about, which is simply that not that people like will take these tools and monetize them or anything like that at all, other than just simply people playing with this. The fact that... The, the pure act of creation. Yeah. You don't have to be monetizing it. Music doesn't have to be a product that's being created to be commodified. It can just be a thing that you're doing. And I feel like that's what's really exciting. You mean the thing it used to be for all of yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. Up until and it, and you're capable of doing something that used to be actually far out of reach for just a hobbyist. You know, for 400 bucks, like that's what new. And you could probably find a, a, a mini brute for far less than that. Like, like you know. Around, I paid 300 Yeah, that's that's kind of the going rate for a used one. They're, they've There's plenty of them out there. It's a lot of creative play for an adult or a young person. And it's just like, you don't have to be a trained musician to just sort of enjoy and explore. And I think that that's a really exciting thing to happen to music world as a whole. I totally agree. I totally agree. And it is returning after too long of an absence, music back to its realm of being just a sort of normal, common human activity. People music like they walk and talk and make meals and it really it's hard for us to imagine because of when all of us and anybody listening frankly could be born would have been born in living memory because in all of our living memory even the oldest human the vast majority of human activity with regard to music is pushing a button is receiving is being a consumer or Mm -hmm. dropping a needle or dropping a needle or putting a cassette you know whatever Mm -hmm. right but just make it a machine put music at you that you sat back and listened to whereas for all of human history before before that, you had to actually sing or pick up an ex- instrument and know how to make it work in a mechanical sense to have music. And so people made music to do Dave's favorite thing that I do to get real professorial. But there's a philosophy of music education that I find very compelling that says that it's not the aesthetic product of music that really has significance, even though that has its own substance and importance. It's the act of musicking. He makes it into a verb. That when you make music, especially in collaboration with other people, it's a kind of knowing. It's a way of sharing information among humans, of paying attention to and receiving information from them and responding to that information expressively in very unique ways. That's its own knowledge. And these tools that you're describing allow that just as well as a violin or a piano or the voice would. In many ways for a person who's not you know, who doesn't have six years to spend learning how to do it a lot the better only, than yeah, those. Yeah, exactly, because they can just start doing <laughs> Because it, right? you don't have to, like, to make a violin sound good and in tune all the time takes considerable amount of training. A decade, whereas, yeah. Yeah, whereas you can kind of get something going 
right away and and that can be an end in and of itself you know it doesn't need to be a product it doesn't need to be a song anybody else hears but i also enjoy right, going just musicking that's the going thing. out just there doing. on youtube or soundcloud and listening to pure amateurs who don't know anything about it making cool things getting excited about it and just doing that and i just like i feel like you could spend the same amount of money on like a playstation if you've got a computer which is you most likely have one of some sort you can get a simple controller and just start spending your time doing that. I mean, I, I got this little tiny keyboard. Last night, I just stayed up on my bed with Logic open and a keyboard just, just goofing around. And there's so many resources online to learn about these things, whether mm-hmm. it's YouTube or forums, all sorts of... Or Gor- so Gordon much. Reed's excellent series on Sound on Sound. Yeah, tons uh, of tutorials. Secrets. So Shout anyone out. who has the desire to learn these things can do it now on incredible scale and efficiency the one that's knocked me out and this is not a commercial we're not a paid sponsor this is just my own use of the product because my campus has a subscription to it is lynda.com the more that stuff proliferates right because you can you can choose your mode of teaching yourself you can read about it you can watch a video if you're reading about it and something is confusing and you'd like to see only that part of the video you just click on the text you're reading and boom it's going to pull up a cue on the video or vice versa it's getting easier and easier to teach yourself these things but not just teach yourself because if it's on youtube you can watch or listen to somebody do it well you've got this vast repository of free lessons that are out there are people who are just sharing stuff they're yeah. good at or know how to do and, and for whether the love it's of doing it and whether it's something that they're trying to do career-wise or just something that they want to do it's going to make music better simply by having a more engaged audience to bring this to a specific sort of angle how's it going to affect musicking do you think music making musical cultural behavior simply the fact that it requires a little bit less investment of both time and finances we're going to find musical artists from a much broader base of people of our population because they're simply more likely to be out there. And I think that hopefully if we have lots of people engaging with it, they're just simply more engaged listeners. And so music with a little bit more uh, lasting value or meat on the bone, more highly in demand, I guess. I think it'll go that way. And at the same time, we'll also see artists like little B who will release a dozen albums a year, just so much, so much music. And for most people, there's like, why would I ever listen to that much? But he has a lot of fans who will just, every time he puts out something new, just throw it on. There's certain people who just really like engaging with their artists that way and just a constant stream of thought. <laughs> I guess it could lead to a proliferation of a higher number of smaller cultures musically, I guess, you know, of listeners. Could. We're already there. Yeah, but I mean, it could get even denser than this. <laughs> How will it not would be my question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 yeah, I think that's, that's already what's happening. The thing that has intrigued me lately is how anyone can find an audience because your distribution network is everyone or everyone who can get media anyway at this point. But you don't have to be physically local to any of them to have an enthusiastic audience. But there is no roadmap on how to find them (laughs) because it's not as a musician. I mean, it used to be really up until a couple decades ago, even with the record industry and all the technology we've had in the last century or so you, if you were musicians, you put your stuff out and you went and you played shows 
in the venues that were around you and you cultivated an audience. And if it got enough, then maybe somebody at a radio station heard you and played. Would you have you singing to their horn. Right. And, you know, or like, you know, I mean, you travel from town to town and spread your music. But it was literally you had to people had to be near you and to play for them for you to cultivate your audience. And now not only is that really hard to do because people don't go out like they used to, but you have a vastly larger potential audience. But how the heck do you find it? Yeah, it's it's a catch-22 because you have so much more media to engage with that, like you said, people are less likely to want to go out to local venues or see local acts. So even though it does democratize... Yeah, Lil B's got another album coming out this week. I can't go I can't go to the club. Yeah, exactly. I gotta listen to his, his, his third album this month. I can't get behind. Homestuck has... He finally posted again. I have to decipher that for the next four, four weeks. <laughs> it's really having, though, a terrible effect on venues, local venues. They're shutting down all across the country. When I went on tour at the beginning of this year with Ghost Town Gospel, there were venues that were shut down that we were going to be at in a couple of weeks. But in the course of being on tour, we once had a guy call us and said, yeah, I showed up today and the, the locks were changed. The, the landlord sold the place. Just like that. Wow. So where are we going to start having virtual clubs then? People are going to play live streamed <laughs> shows that oh, other people yes. tune in. We already have exactly that. exactly what's going to happen. That's already happened. Well, v- VR is right now in a huge, huge transitional VR meaning state. Virtual, virtual, virtual reality. Virtual. Virtual. This is a real thing, yeah. Yeah, the Oculus Rift came out this year and the HTC Vine. And there's going to be playstation is gonna have one by the end of this year and that's gonna be the the cheapest and most likely that will get it on a much bigger mass scale so i came to praise the virtues of buying inexpensive monosynths instead of playstations and now we're back on playstations back on the playstation so there's a lot of really really cool moves being made with vr because there's so little content right now there's so little template to what even to do with it we're and going extinct the human race is going extinct john favreau just a little while also announced that he's working on one right now so he's the most legit director who's gotten involved with that so those are going to be the first huge plays from hollywood and then there's a lot of musical artists who are getting into it for different music videos and then live experiences are going to be very very big i anticipate and then porn, of course. <laughs> That's where the investment will drive things early on. It always does. So, Stuart, how's your week been? Listening-wise or idea-wise? What are you going to play for us, Stuart? Stuff? <laughs> your stuff playlist? Yeah, I realize I've been listening to oh, a little bit last week. Stuff. Okay. Yeah, 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 I have a stuff playlist. I just throw things in there as I think I might want to listen to them. Anthony finds that terribly amusing. Well, there's only one There's one album in it right now. Well, yeah. Well, I delete stuff out and I throw okay. new stuff in there. There's also the new jams playlist. Which Your is non-stuff new. playlist never has any tracks in it, though, huh? No. It's just... It's it's, just there's nothing. There's yeah. no stuff. But sometimes you just put your playlist on, your no stuff. And I listen to nothing. I listen to the silence yeah. and think about life. I listen to the sound of yeah. of, of, of the world around silence. you, except <laughs> exactly. slightly muffled. So what's on the stuff playlist right now is the soundtrack to... Koyani Skatsi, a film, uh, gosh, I guess it's 30 years old now, called uh, Subtitled Life Out of Balance. And it's about uh, ecological processes and modernity and 
industrialization, and it's kind of a fascinating art film. But Philip Glass wrote the score, and it's this whole piece called Koyanis. And it's it's famous from Civilization, huh? Computer game, the game, Civilization. Oh, is yeah. it? Is Koyanis Katsi in that? Yeah, it's on the soundtrack of oh, no one of them. I don't know which one. Anyway, it's just you know, it's terrific minimalism. Here's here's a little clip. Okay. So that's the title track uh, from Koyan Scotsi. And of course, what got me thinking of that and listening to that was the Stranger Things soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, you know, something else I did listen to recently, I told Anthony about this uh, earlier this evening. They recently recovered, reconstructed the first ever computer music. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a VL1. It's awesome. So the recording that was reconstructed is the earliest known recording of computer-generated music from 1951. It was a BBC outside broadcast unit in Manchester. They uh, captured three melodies played by a computer that was housed in Alan Turing's computing machine laboratory. Same. So they had to take the original acetate pressing and clean it up. And, and the most difficult thing was figuring out what was the pitch level should be to try to reproduce the original recording as accurately as possible. But this is fascinating to me because, of course, as we talk about often on a podcast, the origin of computer music is as is significant event in music history as we've seen and this is uh, the very first recording from 1951 that blows my mind this is what it sounds like Obviously not in the mood. <laughs> Need to work on their coding to get their uh, pitch right. But 
That's amazing. That's 1951. That just really that knocks me out that they, they were able to do that. And you have to uh, think about that that's a giant mainframe computer, yeah, and a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their head around that because we're so used to computers that do what we tell them to at the time we tell them to do it. But these computers, you would have to input code that would take hours or even days to run, and then it would spit out whatever it is you want to spit out. And then you'd have to go back and look at all of your raw input because you couldn't write a program. There was no memory that could hold the program, so it had to you had to run in computation. And so then you had to look at all your what you know punch cards or what I don't know, what were they using in fifty one? I think it was punch card. Yeah, was it still punch cards? And you had to figure out where where'd you have one punch too many or one punch too far over that was giving you you know an F sharp instead of an F or whatever. Tedious. Whew. I just I can't help but but think how much because I I understand basically how that that worked how that. It was making sound. It was just basically one of those click speakers, you know, that clicks the ons and offs are at the right rate. And they can make these waveforms that they set at different frequencies. But it just sounds so much like uh, like my Casio VL tone or the VL1, that little toy uh, machine that had us. It was it's probably very similar technology to it. Isn't that hilarious? It took, what, 30 years to go from a massive mainframe there was only one of in the world that it took the world's most brilliant computer scientists to program to get it to make those sounds to, hey, son, look what we got you at Target for Christmas. Oh, and the VL tone has 10 selectable wave shapes and a five-stage envelope. Pretty nice for 1980. That's less than 30 years (laughs) from when this recording was made. So, Keep that in mind. It so, is astonishing. It's a calculator too. It is astonishing. <laughs> so is that, I guess. Fast. And it had VR. It was the the first version of the Oculus Rift. Thank God for Moore's law, making it all possible. <laughs> making it all possible since nineteen forty seven. Seven. Thank you. The year the transistor was invented. Ah, all you nerds. It's also the year that John Coolidge Adams, one of our great living composers, was born. Good for him being born that year. You did it, Good John for Adams. Stewart being on Jeopardy someday. Or <laughs> Trivial pursuit being beat matches by Watson because of transistors. Okay, so that was uh, there's my contribution. Well, that was disappointing, Stewart. <laughs> it played a whole melody, Dave. I watched a movie called Ark. ARQ. It's oh, a, yeah, I put it on my watch list after you recommended it. What is, what is it. this yeah. movie? It's a, it's a Netflix original. It's really cool how Netflix is just completely building its own its own model, and the way you interact with it is so interesting because me and my dad, we always stay up late watching all sorts of stuff, and it's like 1 a.m., we're scrolling through Netflix, and this new thing pops up. And it's a Netflix original movie, so I look it up, and there's no reviews of people who've watched it there's no professional reviews no one has seen this movie until it's just dropped Uncharted on Netflix. waters yeah which is really weird that, that doesn't happen you know they actually made it only available to you <laughs> to your <laughs> subscriber account just to see and now no one will believe just me. to see will the campolo <laughs> household watch this movie we were the folks and group. what will they think what will they think but we're not going to ask them we're just going to hope they they, do they a leave a rating yeah. episode. <laughs> He's on and, a podcast. Touch on maybe it. he'll talk about. It's about music. It maybe it'll be so good. And apparently, it's good. I really liked it. It is solid sci-fi genre fare. What's has, it called? It's called Ark, 
spelled A-R-Q. A-R-Q. What was it about? Did you give us any teaser? Any? No, I don't want. I I, just I don't want to know. You just know. Yeah. It's, I was I was still it. I was Arqua. continuing my thought of this awesome new distribution method that they've uh, created. Arqua. <laughs> What's really great about it is since you don't really have any frame of reference in terms of hype being built up or trailers or commercials or any of the traditional marketing stuff, you get to go into it fresh, and that's really what I enjoy about seeing a lot of movies is getting to go in not knowing anything that's going to happen because it's much better to see a movie be able to follow the train of thought that the directors set out for us that's to how i went into uh not to make this episode about stranger things again but the recently that was i went into stranger things just knowing it was a really good thing that came on netflix you should watch it and i didn't really read anything else about it because it took me a few weeks to get around to watching it and so i went into the whole without knowing anything about it I, I kind of knew loosely the genre style, but that was it. I watched Titanic, and I was shocked when the ship went down. They said it was unsinkable. It's it's on the side of the thing. Titanic. What? How could it possibly? I avoided spoilers. You know what? Years. You know what? One of my most vivid memories. Have I told either of you the story? <laughs> Your past life when you went down on the Titanic? No, not at all. <laughs> Have I told you about my most vivid experience of going into a movie completely unprepared? The two. It, there are two. Pulp there are Fiction. Two. Pulp Fiction is the first one. Pulp Fiction is the first one. I went. It, yeah, it was. Uh, let's see. It was. I was in college. I would have been about to graduate from college, and a bunch of my buddies, five or six of them, were like, "Hey, man, we're going to see a movie. You need to come see. It. It's gonna be great. Sure, we'll have the car. We we'll go to the movie." And as we're going in, I'm like, "What movie are we going to see?" <laughs> Pulp Fiction. Like, like, how do I not know? And I. What what is it's by Quentin Tarantino and I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs. You weren't hip. <laughs> I was not hip. I was not hip to Reservoir Dogs, and I was not anticipating this movie at all. And one of my friends said, "It's good. It's you're just gonna like it." And I, okay, sure. So we go into the movie. As we're waiting in line for tickets, I see the movie poster, the famous you know that looks like the trashy novel with Uma Thurman on it version of the movie poster, and I thought Uma Thurman's in this. And that was about it, right? So we go into the movie, and of course, it is what it is. And I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs, and so I was not hip to not only Tarantino's stylistic, you know, sort of gumbo, but the temporal jumbling, you know, as a narrative technique was totally new to me, too. And it just knocked me out. It was one of the singular movie-going experiences that I've had. That movie, totally unprepared. Woo, that was something. The other one was The Matrix. <laughs> Went into it, no idea what it was. Poster looked cool. Bored one summer day. Those two movies especially seem to have a lot of people with similar stories like that. My parents went into Pulp Fiction the same way. My dad said also that same year he went into Fargo knowing nothing about it also. And he was just that like, would yeah, have been both the of those movies yeah. just totally blew his mind. Fargo, I knew somehow I had seen uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers' first feature film. Uh-huh. I, I, when... I've never seen Fargo, and Phil and I are going to watch it tomorrow. Oh, it's It's funny because we just we were just talking about that about You're two, gonna enjoy two hours ago, I guess. It is fantastic. Uh, so no spoilers, please, guys. Okay. I'm watching it tomorrow. Except for... No. Remember anything? Uh, that no thing, spoilers. Thing. I'm watching it tomorrow. So, and then so I'm going to watch the TV series. Their first movie was uh, was called Blood Simple. And somehow, this is back in the old VHS rental days, 
I was over at a friend's house and he'd rented it. He was hip to it and said, we got to watch this. And, you know, it was great and, and paid attention ever since then. So Fargo didn't surprise me, but Pulp Fiction sure did knock me out. Matrix, too. I remember we walked in, the girl I was dating at the time and my brother, and we were just laughing. My brother and I were laughing about Keanu Reeves, and we were like, how it's going to be all dude, except in computers. And she was getting all upset because she really loves Keanu Reeves. And we walked out of that movie, and it was just I agree like, with both of you guys. Yeah, Because I, I love I know, me too, Keanu me Reeves too, right? and also computers. Everyone loves Keanu Reeves. I, I, I do love Keanu Reeves. And by all accounts, he's a, a stand really up dude. stand-up dude, truly. Uh, but I walked out of that movie going, well, shut my mouth. He was still Keanu Reeves, but boy, was he perfect for that. And it was just, you know, it was... That uh, was the Keanuist Keanu has ever Reeves. Well, and it wouldn't have been what it was without him being in it without you know knowing kung fu but uh without knowing actual he could actually do all the things he did they did spend like six months training and doing intense physical work to get ready for that well no they they spent years building the computers that they could plug them into and then three minutes (laughs) anthony they had to actually make the matrix haven't you seen the the behind the scenes on the the extras and we're like three layers deep now in the simulation. <laughs> what you should have said was... My top's still spinning. No, nah, they did that yours. with computers, and then I go, that's what I'm saying! What? <laughs> have you seen oh. the movie Existence? I oh, haven't, yeah. but I we, had it we recommended We were just talking about this on Tuesday. That is the, that's the OG, is this real or not? Yeah, movie, it's, right? that's, that's definitely... That's, a, that's David uh, Cronenberg, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he really was a bit of a precursor to The Matrix with that storyline. And I was just watching Scanners the other day with my friend Mike. And just, wow, Cronenberg just went on a roll in the 80s because he did that and The Fly and The Dead Zone. The Fly, that is one of the most horrifying movies I've ever seen. I think about it whenever I look at my shoulder hair. No, it's the uh, it's the jar in the middle. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. That's the one that, that gets me. Um, but the, the, I remember with Cronenberg the, with, with the body horror with the really, really thick is, hairs growing on his back. Yeah. Oh god. Every time that shoulder hair comes Man. in, and he was tapped into something zeitgeisty about it, and I'm not sure what it is, even though I lived through it. But it ain't. Well, it, I've, I've it read ain't things good. about it. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not Let's good. Let's not get into it's it. It's not good. The late '80s, we still hadn't reckoned with how gross we got with greed and all that stuff. We're still suffering from that. But to your point, Existence is one of those movies that kind of didn't make a big impact is it on netflix was real i think it is yeah uh cool uh, fargo and it's it's existence but it has a z it ends in a z not a ce but it's the first movie that really played with that idea of is this real or not i guess probably philip k (laughs) dick was the the first writer who who is this just fantasy 50s (laughs) there's always a queen lyric for something (laughs) i always think of that movie in the same group of films like i think about gattaca as being yes. movies that are aging well and that are proving to be kind of uh, just ahead of the curve. Or, and or, I, or I would really, call them you know, Philip K. Dickian. Totally. Yeah. 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 Better than most of the actual Philip K. Dick adaptations, which all of which have been turned into action blockbusters, except and that were awesome. Darkly, well, that were awesome. Okay. Actually, though, I will say that uh, Total Recall is awesome. Is fantastic. Yeah. Paul, Paul Verhoeven, a, oh, uh, no. uh, hugely underrated uh, in my Starship Troopers, I think, is uh, one of the best. A watershed. Ever. Yes, it is a watershed movie. It's terrific. It, it has fantastic. become increasingly exponentially way more relevant in today's age than because that was that was pre 9-11. 
I have not rethought that movie in contemporary terms, actually. There's a whole conversation we could have about that, especially in the context of this presidential election. Yeah. <laughs> with someone who is really outright fascistic getting a lot of support. But if you've never, to our listeners, have listened to, you have, don't want to watched... alienate our deplorable audience. <laughs> <laughs> that basket of deplorables has a few listeners. Uh, they, there can may go, be some, they can go back to Brett Barr and very, very leave slight, our site. <laughs> very, very slight edges overlap on the Venn diagram. If you haven't watched Starship Troopers ever or in a while, and certainly if you've never watched it, paying attention to the fact that this is satire. <laughs> Everything is a metaphor or an allegory for something else. He's not. It's not about what it's about. Then you need to because you'll be knocked out. It's just terrific. I saw that movie as a kid on TV, and man, did I not know what was going on. You were on TV as a kid? Yep. <laughs> watching a movie. Watching, watching a movie. It was, he was, he really was, weird local access program. It was, yeah, it was called the most boring, Anthony's most boring TV show ever. And it was just him watching movies as but a kid. But it's not yeah. even like behind his head. And you were Twitch before it's, Twitch was Twitch. It's just pointed at his face while he watched <laughs> Close up shot, yeah. just my Reaction face. shots of Anthony on his public, act. yeah, Anthony reaction shots on, on K local. I got some Emmys. Thursdays at three fifteen. <laughs> some some exceedingly local Emmys. <laughs> exceedingly local. They Emmys. were local to my house. The the East Bay <laughs> my parents Tri Valley Emmys. <laughs> my parents went to a trophy shop. <laughs> and had a ceremony. We had to dress I up. have lots of trophies. <laughs> and I they did were a like... lot of sports as kids. They they gave us a lot of trophies. All right, I think that about wraps it up for this uh, uh, hangout. <laughs> Y'all come back now. Y'all come back now. Yeah. That about wraps it up for this hangout. Uh, Anthony, you got anything else you want to share? We wish you luck. <laughs>